lot of the academic work, but the church is a living reality, and we are all a part of this family of God. And so it's a real privilege to be able to share with you a little bit about the church. To uh, start off, and this is a bit loud. Thanks. How does that sound? Is that, is that much better? It's good? Can you can hear me? Thank you, Mary. I think that works. I am a little soft-spoken, so it helps to have a mic, um, but uh, we can adjust. This is a prayer from St. Thomas Aquinas that I like to start my classes with at the University of St. Thomas. St. Thomas was also a Dominican friar, so I share in the heritage of St. Dominic, um, probably most renowned, most famous amongst Dominicans, founded 800 years ago, is St. Thomas Aquinas. He was a great philosopher, a great theologian. And uh, he prayed this prayer when he started to study. So I think when we begin to study topics of God uh, and want to encounter God in our studies, we can ask for his intercession. So I invite you to pray with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We take a moment of silence to recollect ourselves and remember that we are in the presence of God always. O oh, good and gracious God, we thank you for this evening, for gathering us here, for inviting us into your love, to know you more deeply and to love you more profoundly. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and enlighten our minds. And together we pray the prayer of St. Thomas. Grant me, O oh Lord, our a, mind, a mind to know you, a heart to see you, wisdom to find you, Conflict that pleases you, faithful perseverance and waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing you. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I assume you've heard of that phenomenon called the Rally Nuns, who were at the World Series recently. Yes, that was my religious community, and I was at the game yesterday. And even though our team did not win, I would say it was a real experience of a lifetime. The, we could say the institution of bat baseball um, really brings about a, a power of camaraderie, the team spirit of all, of all of the team players and the fans gathered together, hundreds of thousands of people together um, cheering on uh, their respective teams. But that, that heightened spirit of excitement, that gathering of persons focused on this ball being thrown back and forth and running to the different bases. What I see in, in baseball is we, no one plays alone. You can't play baseball by yourself. We play in a team. And there's a bigger series than the World Series. It's the Life Series, how we live our lives. And we want to throw, uh, we want to hit uh, that home run, and we want to run back to home base. We want to make it home in this journey of life. There's a destination, and we want to get there. And like baseball, we don't play alone. We play in community. We play in society. We play with one another. No one comes to the faith by themselves, because faith is communal. What I'm getting at here is that community of the church, which we call the family of God. The church, which gives us, provides us the means to achieve our final end, to arrive at home base in eternal life. And I assume all of you have some inkling of this because you are here. You are here tonight because God has willed for you to be here. 
And we can give thanks and praise God for that, that you have indeed paid attention to the knocking on the door of your heart. Because the Lord is always inviting us to something more. And he's always knocking on our lives, the door of our, our lives, so that we can open, that he may enter in. And fill us with his love and his presence. And to enter into fellowship with him. And if we dare to just crack open that door a little bit, ah, and let some ray of light shine in, let him enter and embrace us, even the hurts, the sorrows, the failures of our lives, the, the mishaps, the, the ways that we have strayed away from God, turning back to him and letting him embrace the entirety of our life. It's all about encountering Jesus Christ. I'm ahead of myself. The light of the world. It's a very personal, individual, unique encounter. Your encounter is your own. And no one can replicate that. No one can replace that. Because Jesus loves each and every one of us individually. But our encounter with Christ does not end there. It's not simply a one-on-one -on -one encounter and that's it. But when we encounter the Lord, new horizons open up. We encounter his entire body. We encounter the family of God. And we see this very beautifully in the liturgy on the Easter Tritium, the three high holy days in the cycle of the church's liturgical life. And I hope you will have or maybe will experience this soon. Easter Vigil begins only when it has reached duskfall. The, the world is dark and we're supposed to turn off all the lights. It's a symbol of the darkness of human existence without God. And then what happens? There's a fire that's made and it's blessed. And that light lights the classical candle, which represents our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. In this light, there's one single light, one single fire, and it's this Paschal fire. From that fire, there's a procession that's made into the church, and there are three stops, and at each stop, the presider, the priest, will, will um, sing out, Lumen Christi, the light of Christ, and everyone responds, Deo gratias, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for this light that illumines the darkness of our world, that casts away the darkness of our world and of our hearts. The beautiful thing about the, uh, the liturgy here is that from this one light, we begin to share that light. The light is passed. Everyone has their own little candle, and it represents your baptismal candle. So when babies are brought to the baptismal font to be baptized, the parents profess faith on the baby's behalf, and then the, the parents hold this baptismal candle and it's lit. You will do so for yourselves, owning this faith. But all of the Christians, all of the Catholics on Easter Vigil will have, again, a candle that symbolizes that baptismal candle, and it is lit. But you can't, if, even if you had a lighter in your pocket, you can't take out the lighter and light your own candle. Rather, the light comes from that single Paschal candle, the light of Christ, who is the light of the world. And it's passed from one person to another until every candle is lit. And what happens? The entire church lights up, right? This is not electricity. This is the Lord's light. It, he lights up the entire church, and then the Easter message is proclaimed. The exultant rejoice, and then the lights come on and the readings, and then you have this very long liturgy. But if you, if you forgo the length of the time that you're sitting in, in church and really pay attention 
all of the, the readings go through the whole story of salvation. So we're covering like 2,000 years of salvation history, the glories of God, all that he has prepared for centuries, for ages, so that each one of us can be there in his presence and profess this faith and be a part of the light that makes a difference in our world. And so the church is supposed to be this light. The church does not have her own light. There is no glory or light, resplendent radiance, apart from the light of Christ. The image that the church fathers like to use is the moon, and I love gazing on the moon. I think it's an Asian thing. We, we like to focus on like lunar New Year's, and we look at the moon, and when there's a full moon and you have a nice a cup of tea, hot tea, and you're sipping on your tea and gazing at the moon, there's something really uh, beautiful about that. But I think the church fathers experienced something similar when they called the church the mystery of the moon, the lune mysterium, the mystery of the moon. Because the moon, when it's lit up, is not the source of its own light. Any glory that the church might have, any light that the church might have, is not her own. Rather, when the moon is full and radiant, it's reflecting light from the sun. That perfect reflection, the light of the sun shines on the face of the moon and lights up the moon for us to see, lighting up our own skies. So too, the church is an extension of the presence of Christ, the light of Christ in our world. And the beautiful thing is that God invites each one of us to be a part of that light. You and I, we are to light up the world with the light of Christ. That's what the church is about. That's what it means to be a part of the church. And we're going to delve into some aspects of this very great mystery. We can start with the basics. We can look at the word church itself. It's found in scripture in the gospels as well as many, many times in, in the letters, but a few times in the gospels. And the word that is used is ecclesia. And literally, this was a, a Greek word. Um, that could be used in different connotations, within, I'm sorry, in different contexts, and it basically meant gathering, so a gathering of peoples. This would be an ecclesia. In the New Testament, it is used to apply to that particular gathering of those who believed in Jesus Christ, the church. If we parse the word ek, kaleo, then ek is out of, like exit, out of. Kaleo is call. To call, to be caught out of, to be caught out of the darkness into the light, to be caught out of this darkness of not knowing God into the light of revelation and faith in God. It's a calling. And to speak of a calling means that, well, someone is calling. Like if your phone rings, someone is calling. Hopefully it's not an automated system. Um, or I get a lot of, lots of commercial phone calls uh, at my office, but... When we speak of ekaleo, it's God who is calling. He's inviting, he's invoking, he's knocking. When we think of God calling, very often we think of religious vocation. These are my sisters, and we are gathered here in fellowship. So religious vocation is an extension of the vocation to the Christian faith. It's not something radically new or different. It's a deepening of that baptismal faith. God calling Christians to live in a radical way with a radical witness of faith and love in Jesus Christ. It, it too is a calling. But it is derived from a fundamental calling, and that's the calling of God inviting us into his church, inviting us to be incorporated into the body of Christ. 
And of course, the threshold into this reality is the sacrament of baptism. Culminating, not stopping at baptism, the sacraments of initiation, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation. The culmination is the body of Christ. When we are baptized into the body of Christ, we come to fellowship with one another at the table of the Lord's Supper. And so I would like to focus today, when we, as we talk about the church, um, focus on the Eucharist, this body of Christ, which constitutes what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. Body of Christ is the Eucharist. And I was delighted to hear that you're going to have ice cream next Sunday. But even better, you're going to have Eucharistic adoration. What is that about? Well, come and see, right? It, it's focused on the Eucharist. It's adoring the Eucharist. This is the heart, the core of Christian faith, of the Christian life. Vatican II, a, an ecumenical council, which basically means a worldwide gathering of the leaders of the church, doesn't happen very often. Last time it happened was 1962 to 65. Um, at that gathering, there were great deliberations and documents that we put forward. One of the taglines of Vatican II uh, would be the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. It's the source, it's where everything begins, it's the summit, it's the peak of Christian existence. So as you enter into the Catholic faith, this is going to be the source, the Eucharist. And it's going to also open up the horizons to the peak, the summit of what it means to be Catholic, what it means to be Christian. Let me just give you a peek of what I'm referring to. So we are going to talk about what is the church, and indeed it is a mystery that cannot be exhausted in an hour, nor in a week or a month or a semester of studies. It can only be lived because it's a lived reality, and you will come to know the church better as you live as part of the church, as a member of the body of Christ. So when we uh, approach this theologically, or I give a lecture on the church, or I teach a, I actually teach a course, a semester-long course on the church, ecclesiology, it's being offered next semester. Then obviously we have to conceptualize and we put forward ideas. But none of those ideas, none of those definitions exhaust the reality of this deep mystery of God and his body extended in time for our salvation. Because the church is the body of Christ. And St. Paul tells us in many places that we too are members of this body. We belong to one body. Christ is the head and we are the members. To be a part of the church is to be incorporated into the body of Christ. But simultaneously, what do we mean by the body of Christ? The body of Christ is that Eucharist. When you are initiated into the Catholic faith, you will come up to the communion line and you will receive communion, community. This incorporates us into this body. And so the priest holds up the consecrated host, Jesus Christ, and says, body of Christ, and we respond, amen. Yes, I believe, let it be. That is the body of Christ. But aren't you and I members of the body? Indeed. And we receive the body of Christ in order to be more fully, completely conformed or incorporated into that body. Now here's an image, a famous painting by Caravaggio, um, Renaissance painter. And he was known for his realism. And I like Caravaggio. And the image here is of uh, 
Thomas the Apostle, also called Didymus, he was the doubting Thomas. And if you recall the story from John's Gospel, Jesus resurrects from the dead, he appears to the apostles. Thomas is away doing something, and he misses that appearance. The apostles tell him about it, and Thomas says, well, I won't believe it until I see Jesus myself, and I put my fingers, my hand, into his side, and I feel the, hole, the holes of the nails and the wounds in his palms and his feet until I see for myself. So he's known as Doubting Thomas. Caravaggio depicts that scene in this way. So different artists will have a slightly different spin, a different interpretation, that's artistic license. And I think what Caravaggio does here is quite beautiful. Because I zoom in, you see here Jesus taking hold of Thomas's hand and actually kind of inserting it. Come Thomas, you wanted to feel me? Come. We don't get that spelled out in the Gospels. It kind of leaves it open in John's Gospel. Like we don't know if Thomas actually touched him or it was enough to see Jesus and he fell to his knees and, and professed his faith, saying, my Lord and my God, I believe. Yes, you are alive. Caravaggio says, hmm, okay. He has Jesus kind of pulling Thomas's hand to poke into the wound in his side. And I zoomed in because I always say, my gosh, that must tickle. What'd you say? It's so real. It's like you can, you can kind of feel like the fingers through the flesh. It's so real. Jesus, when he is resurrected, is real in his original body, his body. But now it's a resurrected body. It's the real Jesus. Similarly, in the Eucharist, guess what? It's the real Jesus. This is what sets aside Catholic faith from... I would say most, almost all other Christian denominations and Christian faith. Catholic faith holds to a belief in the real presence. Jesus is really present. Body and blood, soul and divinity. Completely, truly Jesus. In sacramental form, yes, but truly his real presence. He is truly there. So, when Christian Catholics come up for communion and receive the body and blood of Christ, what are they receiving? Cradle Catholics often take this for granted and think, I'm receiving the body of Christ. It's Jesus, I believe. But think about what that means. What Jesus are you receiving? Okay, indeed it is his flesh. In the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life eternal in you. Meaning if you do, you have life eternal in you. What does that mean when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Does he really mean it? He does. Because actually this is the episode in which the, uh, many of the disciples leave, leave Jesus. They walk away because, ew, that's nasty. Cannibalism? Drink your blood? Are you crazy? And you hear frustration in Jesus' voice when he turns to Peter and says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, in a valiant, beautiful moment, he has other moments, um, Peter says, Lord, where would I go but you? You alone have the words of everlasting life. Peter knows in his heart. He doesn't understand. He, Jesus is flesh and drink his blood. Don't understand. But he knows in his heart he loves the Lord and he believes. Even though he doesn't grasp completely, he doesn't know exactly what the Lord means. But he believes. So he gives that assent. But it is truly the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. Now, 
I sometimes ask my students, is this Jesus, the, the flesh of that babe in the arms of the Virgin Mary? Or is it the Jesus who is in his public ministry, preaching and teaching, walking Galilee to Jerusalem and back? Or is this Jesus hanging on the cross, dead? What Jesus are Catholics receiving when they receive Holy Communion? It is all of those Jesuses, the babe, the flesh of the babe, the flesh of the, the uh, Jesus in his prime preaching and teaching, the flesh of Jesus dying on the cross and even dead on the cross. But the body and blood of Christ is not a piece of dead meat. It's not, a, it's not like a piece of steak or whatever piece of meat that we want to devour. Jesus, our Lord, is resurrected. It is a resurrected body and blood, soul and divinity. What am I saying here? With every consecrated host, we receive a resurrected Jesus. We receive the power of the resurrection. We receive a power that is power over death, power over sin, power over weakness, power over darkness. Light dispels the darkness. Love dispels the hate. Truth dispels the falsehood. That's what is offered to us in the Eucharist. God gives us his very flesh, a flesh and blood that is resurrected, that gives us new life. This is why the Eucharist is the peak of your Christian existence, because God is giving us, it's the source of our life, it's this lifeline. If Credo Catholics could understand and really penetrate the meaning of the Eucharist, oh, what treasure we have here. And when we eat and drink his flesh and blood, we are incorporated into him. So the hamburger you eat becomes part of you. But between us and, and the Lord, the Lord is the higher being. When we eat him, we become part of him. We're incorporated into his body. We become part of our Lord. And that, my friends, is the church that you want to be a part of. That is what it means to be incorporated into this living body. The church is not a building. Well, it is, but that's not the full reality of the church. The church is not the Pope sitting in Rome. The church is not the Cardinal here in Galveston, Houston. The church is each one of us alive with the life of Christ and grace through the sacraments. All of the sacraments, but especially the Eucharist, the greatest gift that God has ever given to mankind. So we are going to explore together. At the bottom, the church constituted as the body of Christ by the Eucharist. The church is made the church in the Eucharist, and I've really given you a preview of that. And alongside this, we have what are called the four marks of the church. If you wanted to do a litmus test or a DNA test, because there are a ton of churches for your choosing, many alternatives, how do I know which is the church that Jesus established? Because Jesus did establish a church. But he only established one. He didn't establish the very many plethora of churches that we have today. All believing, professing faith in Christ indeed. And yet, not all the same. So the DNA test is what we find in the earliest profession of the Christian faith, in the creed, the creedal profession. And that creed professes, I believe in the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic. These are the four marks by which we can discern that first church of the very first Christians who professed this early faith. So we see here the Nicene Creed, or it's actually the Nicene slash Constantinople 
creed. And it's really one long sentence with different parts. And the parts developed because there were heresies that emerged at the time of the early church. And those heresies pushed the church to clarify what its faith was and, and profess that faith. But in its basic form, you see here the Trinity. So the first part we have, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Father. Then I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, Son. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, Holy Spirit. So clearly, Christian faith is a Trinitarian faith, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the creed does not end there. It's like one long, very, very, very long sentence. I say to my students, don't, don't, um, dogmatize when you write your papers, like, don't keep going on and on, like, I need academic writing rather than um, paper writing. <laughs> but what we have here is really one long sentence going through faith in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Why would the early church profess faith in one holy Catholic apostolic church? Because the church here is not necessarily divine. It's divinely willed, divinely instituted. Jesus, our Lord, established the church, but the church is constituted by human beings. And very often, almost always, with the exception of Mary, sinful human beings. Versus Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are divine, without sin, spirit, God. The church, in essence, is not divine, but divinely willed. So the very early Christians professed faith in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by extension, faith in the church as the extension of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present to us in our existence, our earthly existence, in time, in space, here and now. So, Jesus baptized, he forgave sins, he walked the earth, he preached, he touched, he healed, and if I have an encounter with the Lord in my heart, I too want to be touched and healed by the Lord. I want to hear his voice. I want to hear him teach. How am I going to do that if he's no longer walking this earth? Well, in God's wisdom, he establishes his presence in an extended sacramental way. And it is in the church. The church is the extension of Christ in time. It is the body of Christ. So that today, if you want to touch Jesus, wow, yes, you touch him in the Eucharist. If you want to hear the words of Jesus' teaching, yes, the church teaches us. If you want the healing graces in infirmity, yes, the sacraments extend to us the healing touch of Jesus. If you want healing of the soul, forgiveness of your sin, because we all do wrong all the time, then yes, the Lord forgives. How? In the sacrament of confession. It's not the priest who forgives your sins. The priest has no authority to forgive your sins, except for the authority invested in him by God, such that he is merely the minister, the channel of grace by which forgiveness flows to us. Because God wants, to, wants the, the rivers of the waters of salvation to flow forth, wants us to receive the graces. And it's given to us in a concrete way. Sure, you can say, I don't need the church. Institutional church has a lot of problems, and it does, because it's human, human, humanly constituted. But nonetheless, in its humanness, there is a divine will that's being played out in time. And 
God wills to reach us through the rivers of grace flowing to us in his church, in his body, concretely here in time. You don't need the church to pray on your own, certainly, but you get something more than what you get when you pray on your own, when you pray in a community of faithful, when you pray and when you are incorporated in the church. So we are going to work through the four marks, one holy Catholic and apostolic, and I'll start from the end first. So apostolic is the fourth mark of the church, and you see in the word apostolic, we are referring to the apostles. The church is founded on the 12 apostles, hence it is apostolic. And when we speak of the apostles, then we also recognize the head of the apostles on which Christ founded his church, and that is indeed Peter. And the successor of Peter today is the Holy Father, the Pope. This, the scriptural warrant for this is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. This is the only place um, in Matthew's Gospel, actually in, in all four Gospels, this is where you find the word church, ecclesia is Jesus establishing the ecclesia on Peter. And if you recall that episode, it goes something like this. Simon Peter, so first, let me go backwards here. Jesus asks Peter, so who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and represents the apostles and gives an answer. Some say you're Elijah, some say you know, you're a prophet. But Jesus says, no, no, who do you say that I am? And the Lord is asking us that too. Who am I to you? Who do you want me to be for you? Because I want to be your savior. I want to be your Lord. Right, so Jesus asked Peter. And Peter gives first that general answer, but Jesus probes further. And so Peter answers, and he says this. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Wow, way to go, Peter. That's an A+. Plus. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. That's what it means. And the Jews had been long awaiting a Messiah figure. And this Messiah is the Son of the living God. Indeed, Jesus is the Son of God. So Peter has it right. And Jesus affirms this because he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. You've given the right answer, Peter, because God has chosen you. My Father has revealed to you my true identity, and you have answered correctly. And therefore, the, what flows from this revelation from God to Peter, and so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Uh, that's the line in which Jesus establishes the church. You, Peter, are rock. You are the solid foundation upon which God, Jesus, builds his church. Now the rock can be a stumbling block, and indeed it is. Today it is. Think of all of the, the chatter that we have regarding our Holy Father. In Shrine Church, even Catholics, um, kind of contradicting or questioning the authority of the Pope, and then outside of the church as well, too. So that rock is very often a stumbling rock, a stumbling block, because the ways of God don't always fit into the ways of the world. We don't understand, we don't get it. But this is what God has chosen to do. He's chosen Peter to be the foundation for a church. 
On this rock I build my church. And then he says, in addition to that, the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. That's a tremendous promise. You want to be a part of the winning team, right? You want to be a part of the bark of salvation that takes you to your destination. Jesus is promising to Peter that the church that is built on him as rock will endure to the end of time. Evil and the gates of hell will not prevail over this church. This is why we want to get the church right. We want the church which Peter heads, even in all its complexities. And then furthermore, I give you authority. Okay, so along with what is being established, Jesus invests authority into Peter. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Ah, this is why he stands at the pearly, light, pearly gates at the end of our lives. Peter, at the gates of heaven. He gives, us, he gives Peter the keys so that Peter can bind on earth. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. What does that mean? It's not giving Peter uh, free reign to, well, you decide whether you want to paint the ceiling blue or red. That's not the case here. The case is, it's an authority of binding and loosing according to what is in heaven. What Peter speaks is going to be in accord with what God has ordained from heaven. And it's, it's not a, a, an absolute authority in which the Pope can choose frivolous things, but rather it's particularly with regard to the essential teachings that pertain to our salvation. Matters of faith and morals, correct doctrine, understanding doctrine correctly. How do we understand the Trinity? How do we understand Jesus Christ as true God and true man? How do we understand the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic? Getting the doctrine right in order to get how I live my faith correctly, the morality. Why does the church teach that this is right or wrong? Peter holds those keys. It's that teaching authority. So when Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, there's actually a wordplay here that is lost in the English translation because what Jesus says is literally, you are rock and on this rock. And the, the word, uh, Jesus spoke in Aramaic and the word he would have used would be kepha. So you are kepha, you are rock, and on this kepha, rock, I build my ecclesia. But when we translate this into the Greek, the transliteration transliterated, so it would be sephos or kephos, in the same way Nguyen is my last name, and you get Win or um, Joseph becomes Jose, transliterate. So kephos becomes sephos. But when you go to the Latin, the word for rock is actually a feminine noun. It, it would actually be Petra. This is how we get Peter. Um, from the Latin, it's actually Petra, but it's a feminine noun, and we don't want to apply the feminine noun to Peter, who is man. So what you, you have happening in the Latin version is the kepha is now made into a masculine noun, a word that did not exist prior. So Petra becomes, Petra is the word for rock, becomes Petros. It's a masculinized noun from Petra. And therefore we have Peter. So you are Peter and on this rock. But the wordplay is, it's supposed to be repeated. You are kephas and on this kephas. Right? So I say, you are rocking on this rock. Or to my students, think of rocky. You are rocky. And on this rock, the Lord founds his church. Anything to help students remember. Right? But the idea here is that this rock, which is sometimes a stumbling block, 
is also a solid foundation. And it is on this foundation, not because Peter is so strong or bright, because he actually isn't all that bright until the Holy Spirit comes, but he is the chosen one. In the same way that God chooses you to be here, God chooses you to enter into his love, into his family. God chose Peter with a particular mission, and it is his mission. And so God wills this, and it is. Now that line in which Jesus makes this grand promise that the gates of hell will not be bowed over the church, this is known as the doctrine of indefectibility, uh, meaning the church will indeed, based on the promise of Jesus Christ, the church will endure to the end of time. And we can be, we can hold firm to this faith. It is, even when we see that there are real issues in uh, the institutional church, there are problems, because human beings uh, are human, and, and yet the Lord does not simply you know, shake off the dust of, on his hands and say, I'm done with you, little minglings, and, um, but rather he chooses to become one of us, to elevate us, to save us. So the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the church and its doctrines and faith and morals will persist to the end of time. Even when the church may be assailed in every direction, and even from within, there is even evil within the church. Even then, it will never be totally overcome. It will endure because Christ promised this. And I see a, an application or a, a, an allusion to the doctrine of indefectibility in the words of Cardinal George, uh, who is now the best of soul. But in 2010, uh, Cardinal George, Francis George, uh, the Cardinal in Chicago, he was speaking to his ordained priests, and he was speaking about the increasing secularization of modern society. Increasingly, we're casting God aside. We are becoming more secularized. We don't need God. We have our material comforts, and that's all we care about. We forget that there is a reality beyond material existence. And indeed, there it is. But he, he, speaking on this topic, he says, he, he says this, and I quote. It's a powerful quote. He says, I expect to die in my bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. The way our world is developing, we're coming to a point in which good religious values and morals are now under attack. What is deemed as free or egalitarian um, is very contrary to what the church has taught for centuries. Morality is being cast aside and all that people focus on now is really their individual comforts, um, what is good for my pocketbook. Uh, there's a loss of an idea of transcendence, there's a loss of any value of sacrifice and of love. And what Cardinal George is saying here is that it may get to the point in which we when we live out our Christian values, we will be persecuted for it. Don't be surprised if that does happen. Because look at who we profess our faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for, for speaking the truth, for standing for the truth. And if we are true Christians, aligning ourselves to him, then we should not be surprised when we suffer in the name of Christ. Maybe suffering to the point of imprisonment, so you think of the, um, the fees or the, um, 
the penalties uh, upon Catholic institutions that don't provide XYZ according to the law. That's a financial penalty. But we'll, maybe it will come to a point in which we are penalized with our life. Would we profess our faith to that extent? Because that's what the Lord does. And that's what the saints do. And that's what we are called to in this call to become holy. But there's more to his, what he says, because he says, after I die in my bed, my successor, the next generation, is persecuted for the faith, and the next generation is persecuted to the point of shedding his blood, guess what? The next generation, that successor, his successor, will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization, as the church has done so often in human history. Because indeed, identify an institution, a human institution that has existed for 2,000 years, you can't find one. You think of the, the great, the peak of human art and civilization philosophy. Think of the Greek, um, Greek world, Hellenization. Uh, think of the powerful Roman Empire. Think of the great Chinese dynasties. Human culture and civilization rise and fall, come and go. But what is of God will endure, and Jesus promises this, the gates of hell will not prevail, the church will last to the end of time, and you want to be a part of that faithful bark. Indefectibility. And we have looked at this passage. That promise of the keys um, identifies another doctrine, so indefectibility is one doctrine. A second one is infallibility. Uh, to be fallible is to be in error. To be infallible is to be free of error. And this is also what is given to uh, Peter in, in this episode in which Jesus establishes the church. And as I was saying earlier, this is uh, applied to doctrines of faith and morals, not just anything that uh, the Pope fancies. So infallibility is that gift, or also called a charism. It's a gift of the Spirit, so the Spirit gives gifts for purposes. It's a particular gift, a charism, that the Spirit bestows upon the office of Peter, such that Peter and his successors, the popes, are preserved from error when they speak ex cathedra. Cathedra is the chair, speaking from the chair of their authority, in their official capacity, with the fullness of his authority as successor of St. Peter and head of the church on earth to proclaim a doctrine on faith and morals as binding upon the whole church. So the, the teaching of the church has authority. We can't just say, eh, don't like what the Pope said, when he teaches officially. If it's an official teaching, even when we don't fully understand, we recognize that indeed there is a long-standing tradition and a spirit which is imbuing the church, a spirit which is working within through this promise charism of infallibility. And of course, if you think about it, I, I would think at least that the church in her tradition of 2,000 years knows much more than I do in my 40 plus years of existence, right? Of course. But how arrogant I can be sometimes when I think I know better than the church. That I stand before a teaching and I say, not my truth, cast it aside. How arrogant that is. And yet we fall into this all the time. When we come before truth, we want to judge the truth. Do I like this truth? Hmm. Is it inconvenient? Is it going to cost me something? Actually, when we come before the truth, the truth judges us. 
That's what it means to be that objective truth. Do you, me, measure up to the truth? And yet we, we turn the tables and we flip the coin and, and we say, I want to be the judge of truth. No, it doesn't quite work that way. It can work that way, uh, you can think it works that way, but at the end of the day, when we stand before the Lord of truth, there is a real truth. There are consequences to our, our choices. And yet God does not let us walk in the dark alone. The teaching authority of the church is not meant to be a burden. It's not meant to make life difficult. It is actually showing us the way to eternal life. Don't binge drink because that's not good for you. But I want to. Why do you make my life difficult? Well, actually, there is a path of virtue and happiness and holiness. And it means getting on to the right path. So the teaching of the church is there to lead us to God, not to make our lives difficult. The church is a real gift from God. It's, it's the means, the sure means to salvation, to eternal happiness. Okay, so the church is founded on the apostles, and there's apostolic teaching. So we, we have continuity between the very first apostles, that their teachings have been handed on to us. This is why that creed that we profess in Mass every Sunday, that's echoing the same words of the apostles. Like, that's pretty powerful. Like, you're saying the same words that the apostles said 2,000 years ago. It's the same faith. There's unity here. And then there's also apostolic succession. This unbroken line of succession from the very first 12 apostles, from Peter, we can trace directly from Peter, his successor, who was, hands were laid upon his successor, and he was made pope, the next pope, all the way down through 265 popes. To come to our Holy Father today, there's an unbroken line of succession. We can guarantee that through the apostles, we can trace ourselves through human history back to the original 12 apostles on which Christ founded the church. That's, that's a valuable treasure that's, that roots us in the Lord himself. And this is important to Catholics because along that order, that line of succession also ensures that what the bishops who succeed the apostles and the Pope succeeding Peter, what the work of the bishops, when they ordain men to become priests, helpers um, within the church, local church, working under the bishop, that ensures that this, there is continuity here in the line of grace being given through the sacraments, such that when there are requirements for an authentic Eucharist, right? So I can mimic a priest and pretend I say mass, but simply because I say the exact same words does not mean the host that I speak to and say this is my body, this is my blood, becomes the body and blood of Christ. No. There has to be some line of continuity to the original experience. And apostolic succession guarantees that, and it's very important in order to preserve and maintain the integrity of what is being offered in the sacraments. So we now go back to, that was apostolic, we go to the first mark of the church, one, and we have the, the idea already laid through apostolicity, through the apostles, through the successor of Peter, we have a unity. So the, mark, the first mark of the church is one, there's a real unity here, and the Pope preserves that unity, such that we have unity 
oneness of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There is only one flock, one shepherd. The mark of one can be delineated into three aspects. There's unity in our faith. We all profess that same faith. You can go to, you can travel overseas and go into a church. If you know it's Catholic, you know that it's the same faith. And you can actually attend mass and not know any of the words being said because it's in a different language. And yet it will be recognizable because it should have the same form, same, same gestures, but in a different language. Because it's the same faith. There's unity in faith. Therefore, also unity in worship. From that faith, what we do with our faith, the, the peak, the greatest, the most important action that we ever do in our lives is worship. Worship of God in the Mass. It's the most useless, because it doesn't actually produce, it's, it's not oriented to productivity, but it's oriented to give God glory. That's the goal. So the, there's this unity in worship and then unity in leadership, as we saw. And this unity, again, is established in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a sacrament of unity. The fact that we all share in one loaf, because the loaf of bread is one, we, though many, are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. And so indeed, the, it's all Eucharistic centered. We're, we're focusing on the Eucharist because that's what constitutes the church, and that's what constitutes the heart of our Christian faith. The second mark, the church is holy, and you look around and you say, well, lots of sin happening within the church, and indeed that is true. But when we say that the church is holy, professing I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, we are saying that the head of the church is the source of holiness. Christ is the head, and he is holy. And guess what? He washes his bride with his own blood and water from his side. That's from Ephesians. Christ loved the church and handed himself over to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word. The church is holy not because she's sinless. No, she's still sinful. She's still in a pilgrim journey to her goal. But she is holy because Christ promises that holiness. Christ makes her holy and endows her with the means to holiness, these sacraments that I've been referring to. And not only the sacraments, but we see the fruit of this in the communion of saints, these holy men and women who are our family members, who are our friends, and we can invoke their intercession. So the holy sacraments are holy. These are the means to holiness, even when we continually fall into sin. This is the Holy Father confessing his sins. Um, he, too, is a sinner. And he, too, seeks out the sacrament of penance. But again, the sacraments are the means to make us holy. When we fall, we run to confession, to receive that, that forgiveness and that healing grace. But the greatest of the sacraments is the Eucharist. It's the very body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. So coming nearer to the Eucharist is coming nearer and growing in holiness. And it's not just coming near, but it's consuming, taking and making part of you. God is just crazy, right? Who would think of that? Only, only God could. And only he actually does make it happen. And if you think of the Eucharist, it's an abiding presence. He wants to be with us, and he is. He's dwelling in the chapel, in the church, in the tabernacle, in the Eucharist, just waiting for us to be near to us. That's a sacrament of love. 
That's a sacrament of purification and sanctification. God makes us holy in the sacraments and in the Eucharist. And of course, we have the saints who are holy. But they are not so different from us. The saints are of all walks of life. They are male, female, they are of all nations, all ages, um, all dispositions. But what makes them, what is in common amongst them is their faith, hope, and love. They have God within them. They have received the Spirit. And with the Spirit are the gifts of faith, hope, and love, these theological virtues. Now, prior to faith, prior to encountering God and embracing Him, then maybe we know God abstractly or at a distance. But when we are given faith, that activates the powers of our soul. So I knew God intellectually, perhaps. But when I have faith, my intellect, I now know God in a personal way. He is Father. And I love Him. So I know Him in a new way, and I love Him in a new way. Prior to embracing faith, you didn't have faith, hope, and love. You, we stand at a distance from God, and we fear God because He is Almighty. He is God. He's divine. He's eternal, and I am not. But when we embrace faith, then we something is something new is given. My intellect, which knows things, now knows supernatural things. Knows God. My heart, which loves things, I love water, now loves supernatural realities. Now loves God. Who would dare to think that before? But God gives us these gifts the virtues, in order to actualize this reality in our souls. And all of us, we are all called to this life. We are all called to this fullness of life. We are all called to holiness, a universal call. I'm looking at the time. Mary, how much longer? You're to a Okay. You've got till 8.30. Okay. God is constantly beckoning our hearts. He wants to give us more than we can imagine. He wants them, and when we, and it's, it's actually possible to, to fall in love with God in the same way that human beings fall in love with each other. You know, when someone is in love, and I had students, I had two students who were obviously in love, sitting in my class, and they would look at me as I was lecturing and take dutiful notes, and they would turn and look at each other and just gaze into each other's eyes and smile, and I would be, I would be lecturing, but I would be watching. And it would so amuse me because they were clearly so in love, they would just look at each other and they would be happy. And then they'd do the same routine again, they'd look at me, and look at their notes, and then they'd gaze at each other again. When we are in love, our horizons are transformed. Suddenly, the sky is blue, the sun is so warm and radiant, and we're filled with joy. God wants to woo our hearts. He wants to fill us with His Spirit, and it's a spirit of love. We have the testimony for this in Scripture. Uh, Paul says in Corinthians, do you know that your body is the temple of the Spirit? Right? Don't use your body to do impure things, which we often do. Use your bodies to glorify God because the Spirit wants to dwell in us. Or below, Jesus, at the end of his life, he goes through this long discourse, and he says, well, when you realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you, whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. Observe my commandments. That's the way you show you love me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and reveal myself to him. So when you love me, Jesus, you keep my commandments. And what happens? The Father loves you with the same love that the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son with the love of all eternity. 
of an eternal God pouring himself out and begetting a son. And now he lavishes that love on us because we love his son and we keep the commandments of the son. And does it in there because he says, whoever loves me will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling in him. So he doesn't just say, I love you and go away, but he says, I love you and I'm staying and I'm going to dwell in your heart. In the same way that when we love someone, constantly thinking about them, constantly you know, thinking, how can, I, how can I please my beloved? God dwells in us. He wants to be close to us. He wants to be intimate. Okay? He's a personal God. That's why we call the three realities the three persons. right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are real persons. He's personal. Or in Peter's letter, very clearly and boldly stating in the yellow at the bottom there, that God invites us to be partakers in divine nature. So we are human, we're not divine, but God wants to make us divine. He wants to divinize us by giving himself who is divine so that we can share in his divinity. And how does he do that? The love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of love. It's that intense love between the Father. Father loves the Son, begets the Son, pours himself out entirely. The Son returns that love. They love each other so much that the bond of love becomes a third person. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. God is crazy in love with you. And this universal call to holiness. Everyone is called to holiness, like the saints. This is not yet fully a saint. He is a blessed, so he's one step away of being proclaimed a saint. A very modern saint, buried in jeans and Nikes. A very young one, but a very holy young man. He died in 2006. It's blessed Carlos Acutis, an English-born Italian Catholic schoolboy. He loved computer programming, and he is known for, he collected data on the different Eucharistic miracles, so note the focus on the Eucharist that made him so holy. He collected that data and he created a website that would make that available um, for people seeking to grow in holiness. Uh, and he died of illness in 2006, and the church has recognized this holiness in this very young man, uh, 16 years of age, 15, 16. And he is known to have said, the Eucharist is my highway to heaven. Yes, it was. He was on the fast track, his highway to heaven, and his love for the Eucharist. So very modern, very much um, a saint of our time. Or we think of Mother Teresa, a great saint, and her great love for God. I won't read that because um, of time. But Mother Teresa had a great love for the Eucharist. She said this was the secret to her life, her happiness, her holiness. No matter where she was or what she was going to do that day, every day started with an hour in Eucharistic adoration. This was the source of her strength, a woman who was, who was powerful and strong, though a weak human, otherwise an insignificant human being, who became so powerful because of the power of God's love in the Eucharist. So she would spend an hour in adoration, and this is what all of the uh, missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's sisters, do and encountering the Lord in the Eucharist, and then, and then going out and encountering the Lord in the forsaken, in the marginalized, and those who, whose flesh are rotting because they have left leprosy and have been left to the wayside to, to die. And Mother Teresa and her sisters would go and collect these 
rotting bodies, not yet dead, but dying, and give them at least a dignified last moment, recognize their dignity, recognize their dignity as human beings, and, and love them in their very last moments. I want to tell a story, but I'm like, eh, time. So I have a priest friend who's a Dominican. He's, he's uh, much older and therefore very rich in life experience. And he volunteered in Calcutta when Mother Teresa was alive and was good friends with her. And he said um, one time he arrived in Calcutta and he, uh, uh, he was there to serve. And so as soon as he saw the sisters, they said, oh, Father, we need you. And so he followed them out into the streets. And there was a woman um, in the gutter who was evidently a very weak and dying, and indeed, rats were eating at her flesh already. And so they brought, they had father carry the woman, bring her in to the convent, and they were going to wash her wounds. They were going to care for her before she died. And this priest, an American priest, um, not knowing the language, uh, he, the sisters knew English, but this woman did not. He said he, he cradled her in his arms while they were cleaning her head. So there were, there were um, open wounds in her head. So uh, they were cleaning her head, and he had her cradled in his arms, and he was looking down at her. And she was looking up at him. And there was this communication that was going on. Uh, and it was not with language. It was with, just with their eyes. And he understood the, the mission of the sisters, the missionaries of charity, was simply to love, to love the unlovable. And he said she smelled. And uh, she did not look good. She did not smell good. She was very little and light, but she was rotting. And he, he thought, well, maybe he should try to say something to her. So he tried to speak to her in English. Obviously, she didn't understand. Um, so they kept looking at each other. And he said the, the cleaning continued, and she was clearly at her last moment. But before she died, she reached up and caressed his cheek. And then she died. It was a gesture of gratitude. Not through language, not through words, but through, a, through hearts imbued with godly values, uh, with a heart that could see with the eyes of God. This is what faith, hope, and love does to us. It makes us like God, like God loves us who are unlovable. And he invites us to be the extension of his hands and his heart to those around us. And Mother Teresa exemplifies this in the most beautiful way. And she, she reminds us to, to love uh, uh, the least amongst us. The last mark that we have, the third mark, is the mark of Catholicity. So the word Catholic here is the word for universal. And it means that the church is Catholic because the church exists for all peoples and is a means of salvation for all, okay. across time and across space. So you see the root of the words kata holos for Catholic. Kata is according, this is Greek, holos according to the whole. Universal in space, so geography, to the extent of all of human existence, but also universal in time from the beginning of time to the end of time. This is the bark of salvation. The church is the means of salvation for all. 
And the mission of the church is a universal mission to bring all people into the, the new people of God. And as I was saying, it extends um, from the beginning of time to the end. So Alpha and Omega, Alpha, these are the letters of the Greek alphabet, the first letter to the last letter, from the beginning of time to the very end of time. The church Christ has established so that all can be brought into salvation, into the body of Christ. And in space, think of, think of the way the sun dawns universally. The sun warms everyone. It, do, it's not, it doesn't discriminate between I like you, I don't like you. Rather, salvation is, be had, is to be had for all. The church is Catholic in this sense. It is universal. But not only that, in the Eucharist, we see a Catholicity in time and space bringing us to our eternal destination. Because, again, this Eucharist is the resurrected body and blood of Christ with the power of the resurrection to overcome sin. It's the food by which God nourishes on this, us on this journey of life so that we can get to the end. And we hear echoes of this if you've attended Mass before we receive the Eucharist or the communion line begins, the priest holds up the consecrated host and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Okay. This is the Lamb that was slain for you and I. Behold and receive. Those same lines, the, that same image, appears in the last book of the Bible, the apocalyptic text of the book of Revelation. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of the end of the world. John writes the book of Revelation, and he says there in chapter 5, he sees a crowd of righteous gathered, and what do they do? Amidst them is a lamb enthroned, and the righteous who are gathered proclaim to the lamb, worthy is a lamb that has been slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom of God. So they worship this lamb. It's that same lamb of God that we worship in the, the Mass, in the Eucharist. Behold, this is the Lamb, the same Lamb at the end of time. Such that, indeed, when we receive that in the sacramental form of the Eucharist, we receive the Lamb of God, it's that same Lamb who will appear at the end of time. Meaning, we are receiving our final eschatological glory. We are being brought, we are being nourished for this journey and receiving a foretaste of eternal happiness in the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the greatest gift and it's given to us in the church. So, welcome to the body of Christ, and we can celebrate the body of Christ. Amen there. Thank you. We have some time for questions? Sure. If you don't ask, I tend to ask. <laughs> Yes. Uh, what is the mission of the church according to the church? The mission of the church is to sanctify. The church exists for a purpose. That's what mission is. Mission is, it's from the Latin word uh, mitere, which is to send. Uh, so the church is sent on a mission, and its purpose, its existence here, is to sanctify. So everything the church does must be oriented to that. Now you say, okay, it's a fundraiser. It's trying to raise money in order to fund the activities that enable um, uh, an evangelization that brings in people and helps make them holy. 
provides the means for that. Yes? There's evil within the church. There's evil within the church and around the church because it's made up of men, of course. So, going to the infallibility of the Pope, how do you know it hasn't reached that level? We have assurance in our faith. So, we are talking about realms of faith. We know that it is ensured not because of human assurance, but by the promise of the Lord. So when we think of the church, we must always remember it is constituted by human beings, but it is fundamentally, it is divinely instituted. It is imbued with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God is not going to let his plan mess up. It gets messy, it indeed does get very messy, but it does not totally mess up because God has promised this. And we can cling to that promise. Now the infallibility of the church, uh, of the Holy Father, the Pope, um, is not exercised very frequently, or if we think of infallible pronouncements. The Holy Father and our bishops teach infallibly when they teach in accordance with the tradition that has been set. When they go contrary to the tr tradition, then we have questions. But the last infallible statement that was made by the church would be in 1950, in which the church proclaimed the doctrine of Mary's assumption into heaven, to say that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. So she go, she precedes us in this journey of faith. Like when we die, or when we come to the end of our journey on earth, um, our body and soul separate, that's a theological definition of death. Um, it's not ceasing of the brain activity, but rather body and soul separate. Your soul goes before the throne of God, your body, depending on what you choose, in your will, um, it brought up in the earth. Okay. But Mary uh, did not experience that separation or that rotting of the corruption of her body because uh, her son gave her a special grace to honor her as his mother, who collaborated with his plan of salvation and brings her to heaven. So she precedes us. Uh, she is bodily and soul united to God in heaven. That's not to say, well, Mary gets all these privileges. Actually, what happens to Mary is an assurance of what God promises to us. So God is showing us what will happen. Because it happens for Jesus. He's resurrected from the, from the dead. His body is wounded, separate. And then he is resurrected, comes back to life, and he ascends into heaven. But you would say, but he's, he's, he's divine. He came from God. But Mary is not divine. Mary is completely one of us. And yet God can work wonderful things in her because she gave herself to the plan of God. And so he too, that same promise can be fulfilled for us. So going back to infallibility, that's the last time the church made an official infallible statement. It was 1950. So it's been a while. Um, but the ordinary teaching, uh, ordinary magisterium, is infallible when it teaches not something new, it's something in accord uh, and in unison amongst all of the, the successors of the apostles, all the bishops. So there's going to be a synod in the church in, in 2023, if I have my numbers right. Uh, and so the Holy, it's an extraordinary synod, meaning the Holy Father wants to gather the bishops from around the world uh, to discuss, in particular, the way the church functions. So the topic is synodality. Um, so a more communal kind of operation. And uh, that will be another moment of 
the spirit in the life of the church. So my point is going back to it's it's the Holy Spirit that gives life to the church. And that spirit, that life from the spirit is not going to die. Now darkness may seem to encroach upon the light of the spirit, but it's not going to overcome the spirit. Try putting darkness and light in the same room and the light overcomes the darkness. Now maybe for a time we suffer the darkness, but there's a purification process there too. You know, I find that in my failures, I learn more than in my successes. And in my suffering, um, I actually grow in love for God more than when things are going well. So even when it's in the dark, it, maybe this is a period of purification. I think, I think a lot of people think that anything the Pope says is valid, and that's not true. That's what you're saying. There's just certain times. Just because he says it, or writes it in a, in a paper, or you know, uh, yeah, it's not that that's right. That it's infallible. Yes, thank you for that emphasis because it is true. Infallibility only pertains to formal doctrine proclaimed, and the Church of the Pope intends to make this binding upon the Universal Church, and he invokes his authority as the Supreme Pontiff. And it can only be in matters of faith. So Mary's assumption into heaven as a, a doctrine of faith, or matters of morals. It gets a little muddy with morals, like how we, we should act or how we. And the other thing today, though, is um, with media interpreting. This is how we hear what the church or the Pope says. We hear it through the media, which is already a lens of interpretation that isn't always going to be accurate. Yes? Goes up for communion. 
then it's a contradiction. It's, it's duplicitous. We don't always understand it that way, but that's what the meaning of taking communion means. It means I'm in communion. Hence, it's not only restricted to like only Catholics can receive it. There are Catholics who may not receive communion. If you are living, if I have the burden of mortal sin in my soul, so I committed a mortal sin, a grave sin, an offense against God, guess what? I'm not in communion with God. I am to refrain from receiving communion. I am not allowed to receive communion, even as a Catholic. Because the meaning of what I'm doing is I am symbolically, okay, this action has symbolic meaning, and it means that I'm in communion. So obviously, someone who does not share the same faith, and if you did share the same faith, then that means you're a part of this communion, you're a part of the church, you've been fully initiated, then yes, that's sharing communion. But if one is not fully a part of the communion, then then to receive communion is to, it's an action that contradicts itself. It's not honest, right? So I, I say I love you, but then um, I, I mean the opposite in my heart. That doesn't work, right? Uh, does that help? Yes. And um, to your point about um, the difficulty of the Eucharist, yes, indeed, it's true, because this is the most radical thing that God has done it's hard to grasp, uh, to wrap our minds around it. And there's a lot of um, biases and myths and misunderstandings about the Eucharist. It goes back even to the early Romans thought the Christ these Christians, they're cannibals. They talk about eating the flesh of that Jesus Christ. Right? So it's not a surprise. Um, I would recommend uh, listening to or hearing or reading uh, the conversion story of the great biblical scholar today at the Institute of Scott Hahn. Um, he was a Protestant minister, uh, knew his Bible scripture very well, and he had a great bias uh, against Catholicism. But he studied at a Catholic university because he, I think he wanted to study under some particular scholar at Marquette University. And I was there, I was at Marquette, we had a, a mission house there. I was there for um, three years, and I was at Marquette, and I would kind of sit in the, um, the crypt church and think, well, I wonder which few <laughs> because he was a Protestant going to a Catholic Jesuit university, and he hated this idea of worshiping a, a thing. Right? This is this is idolatry, um, and this is what the Catholics did. But he was curious, and there it is. So he would sit in a back pew somewhere in the chapel and just observe. And he came with all of these misconceptions. But he was a biblical scholar. He knew the Word of God, and he would sit there and he would say. Ah, he understood what was happening. He would watch, he would listen to the words, and he would be able to identify the scripture and the root of it and the Jewish um, provenance, the, the, the origin of what was happening and how this was playing out because this was a Jewish cedar mill taken to the next level. So Scott Hahn was honest. And this is, this is what I mean by when you come to the truth, the truth leads you. you. You don't get to lead the truth and distort it to what you want. right? If you come to the truth, and you let it lead you, if you're honest with yourself, then you walk, you step into the light of the truth, and he did that. He, he shed all of the misconceptions about Catholicism, and now he's a great Catholic scholar. So I would recommend Scott Hahn. I can still vision him flinging his grandmother's rosary and having the beads going everywhere, and just, you know, just how far he came after that. Right, yeah. And it's really the work of God. Like, 
he allowed God to do that, and God is continuing to, to achieve marvelous things in his scholarship and, and his evangelization. Yeah. Yes? I was just going to make a comment. I love what you had to say about um, the Eucharist being community and all. And if you ever want to see community in action, once you come into the church, sign up for pastoral care, go to a communion service at an assisted living or nursing home, and see the unity and community that comes together when you give these individuals communion. And I, mean, I, I just did this again yesterday. It was the first time I got back out there since the lockdown. And it felt so good. And just some planting seeds, something to think about when you come into the church. Because don't view this as graduation. It's, it's a commencement. It's the beginning. Yes, thank you. Yes. I was wondering if you would share your, your story of your calling again, which I, I enjoyed last year. But then... My vocation. Yes. Yes. Yes, thank you for the question. Um, my vocation. So I grew up in a very devout Catholic family. My father was a sacristan at our church in North Houston, Our Lady of Laval, Jimmy's parish. We were there before they built the church. I used to play hopscotch on the foundation that they, they, they laid. We would, let, we would literally just get rocks and like, draw on the concrete and play hopscotch. Um, but um, so my family spent hours and hours not just every weekend, but every day at the church. My excuse to get out of it was, I have homework, Mom. And she'd be like, okay, sing home. Um, but um, I was not so devout myself, but my, my parents were, and they planted the seeds of faith. So the, the family is the domestic church. This is where the faith very often begins. The seeds are planted here. Um, so my, my parents planted not only the seeds of my faith, but also my vocation. Um, my parents also loved religious. So we frequently had priests come have dinner, and then sisters as well. So there were Dominican sisters, the order that I entered, uh, would teach uh, CCE at my um, church, and then my parents would pick us up. They would ask the sisters to drop us off, and then, well, you we might as well stay and have dinner, and it would go along into the evening. So I, uh, we very frequently had priests and religious in our house as guests. And so the sisters would always ask, so, are you going to be a sister when you grow up? And when you have so many of them in your house asking you this all the time, you just say, yeah, and then run off. Because if you say no, they're going to start you know, interrogating you as to why. And look at all the wonderful things the sisters do. And they're like, I know what you do. You do it all the time in my house. So you say, yeah, but then in my heart it was, I'm just trying to, trying to get away from the conversation. Well, my, sis, my older sister entered. Um, and uh, she and I were very different. So I knew ah, that proves it. If my sister does this, I'm not doing it. Um, so she entered, and I, I thought that was confirmation that I'm never going to follow her footsteps. But what happened was, on the day she was invested, when she was uh, to enter the novitiate, um, so prior to the novitiate, they, there's a uniform that is worn but it's really just black slacks and a white blouse and a shield pin. But uh, for the novitiate, you have the full habit, and then you're, you are invested with the scapular. So this is a blessed piece of our habit. The habit is what we wear. So the tunic inside, the scapular, which is blessed um, in the tradition of you have devotion to Mary. The scapular is called a scapular because it covers the scapula, the 
the shoulder blades in front and back. It's a reminder of Mary's blessing, so it's like the cloak of Mary on you. That's the idea. So you're invested with the scapular, and then you receive the belt. It's a reminder of, of the vow of chastity. And then with the belt, you receive the rosary, which is, uh, was given to St. Dominic, the founder of my order, as a means to evangelize, to meditate on the mysteries of the life of Christ and Mary, as a means to grow in holiness and um, conquering error and heresy. And then you get the white belt. When you profess vows and become officially a sister, then you receive the black belt. And then when you, after six years of temporary profession, you profess a final vow, and that's until death, and that's when you receive the ring. But my sister came in to the mass of investiture in the tunic, and then you would watch, the entire congregation would watch the, the scapular put on and the belt. Everything is blessed, and it's invested. So I, as a good Catholic, was sitting in the very last few, <laughs> a teenage Catholic, um, typical one, sitting in the last few and here for my sister, who was like, sending her off, I get her room. But after she was fully invested, what they do is everyone, they stand up and then they turn to face the congregation and the congregation claps. Well, God had it that I, in my, the very last few, could look straight up through the congregation, through all the bobbing heads, and I could see my sister directly. And she was now fully invested, fully clothed in the garment of a Dominican sister, or novice, with the white belt. And I saw her, but I said, that's not her, but that is her. There's been a transformation. Like, something beautiful has happened. Like, I know my sister, but she's chosen something beautiful, something more. And I started bawling. I started crying. <laughs> Inconsolably. And so the mass ended, and I was still crying. And then the sisters would come by, and they thought I was crying because I was going to miss my sister. They were consoling me, it's okay, you can come visit her. I said, no, sister, that's not why I'm crying. Why are you crying? And then I started crying all over again. It was, I was crying because God touched my heart in that moment. And that's what I meant by sometimes God knocks on your heart, or he touches you and then something happens. And for me, it's often accompanied by tears. And he touched my heart, and I knew there was something beautiful that I didn't have. My sister found it, and I wanted it. So I signed up, <laughs> and uh, and I entered. Um, I think a couple weeks later, and then started the formation program, um, and I fell in love with it. After two years, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And then um, friends of the family would say, "Oh, you're following your sister," and I was, "No, I'm not following my sister. I'm following Christ." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and. It continues to unfold and open up. So I've been in religious life. I've been professed um, with vows for over 20 years. And it's never boring. There's, if I'm honest to myself and attentive and attentive to my prayer life, then there is a real working of God. I can sense, recently I've, I've been sensing the spirit. And the spirit, as I've been describing to you, is the spirit of love. And I came back from an event um, in California, uh, and I and I thought to myself, something something strange has happened because I literally feel like I'm in love. And I was like, what, what did I do? <laughs> um, but I was confused because I had these strong emotions within me. I felt so loved, 
and I felt so happy. And when I was quiet, my soul would flood with peace. And I thought, this is so peculiar. What happened? Um, and so I had a discernment period um, with my spiritual director, and I realized that the spirit is just resting in me. It's a pure gift. Like, why is God so awesome? Like, I was in love with him before, and then I got to the routine of life and do my ministry, and, and I enjoy what I do. But then he takes me to the next level, and he says, ah, oh, there's more to be had. And it's going to continue more and more and more. And when we get to heaven, it's not going to be, that's it, that's the peak. In heaven, it's an infinite increase, right? So you're not lacking in heaven. And the, the simple, beautiful image that St. Therese uses is everyone has their cup or their receptacle. And the size of your receptacle, your cup or your mug or your bowl, depends on your love on earth. Right? How much charity? How how do you love? It's not how much money you make, what are your grades, what's your GPA, what's your salary. It's not that. It's not what car you have, what house you live in. It's how much did you love? And that is that receptacle to fill us with the life of God. And so everyone in heaven has their receptacle filled to the full, a hundred percent to the brim. Everyone is satisfied. But it's not like I'm satisfied and done and stagnant. St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Teresa of Nassau say that our capacity for this infinite love expands exponentially, infinitely, because God is infinite. You can't exhaust him. So we are satisfied completely, but that satisfaction keeps growing. Like, God is so crazy. He's so wonderful. So we, we, we have so much to be grateful for. And gratitude to the Lord is a real movement of the Spirit. So you can start counting your blessings. I do this as a junior sister um, because someone told me it was good for me. So I would write my journal every night what I was thankful for that day. So I, I would be thankful for the good things that happened. I would list that out and then I would do the same thing every day. And eventually I got to a point where I realized I started listing even the bad things, like the bad things that happened that I didn't want to happen things that I was upset about. I was starting to become thankful for the crosses in my life. That's what it means to take up your cross. Don't shirk your cross, right? Everything has a grace to it. There's even cruciform grace in the form of the cross, in the form of suffering. And when we are grateful, we can, that grace, that suffering, it becomes sweet. It's crazy, but even, even the, the dark shades in our life have a place, and we grow from them. So, St. Paul says that all things work for the good of those who love God, and indeed it does. Because God is that good. He can make every perfect line straight. He can draw something beautiful out of everything that's messy in our lives. So when you associate with God, you will, you will find that he's the best friend ever. And he's more than that. And there's, there's only more to be had and more to explore. So don't be afraid to open your heart and open your life to God. In serving others and and making making that step, and I know it's hard. Um, I work with some students on campus at St. Thomas um, who have to take my class because it's required. Um, but then God works in their heart. Uh, I had a student who uh, was forced to read forced to read the Catechism, and he was a non-traditional student, older, who's in his 40s or 50s, and he said, "I have been looking all my life for answers." And the catechism had the answers. And he said he couldn't stop reading. Like, he would stay up at night late just reading the catechism. 
And he would cry throughout the night. And he would have to force himself to close the book, go to sleep, because he'd have to work tomorrow. And he found answers. And, and creative packets, we take this for granted. Like, the answers are spelled out. They've been revealed. We don't have to figure it out on our own. It's given to us. We don't. We just have to relish it. So explore. Open your heart, and God will fill you with things even greater than this semester. So I've got Trinity, which oh, is like a, wow. such a hard class, but it's so wonderful. Oh, yeah. And the students are great. Oh, good. Yeah, that's a biggie. Yes. Well, great. Well, thank yes, you again. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for this. Of course. Of it. course. Absolutely. Good yes. to see you. And our sisters love your class. Oh, they're so sweet. Yeah. I they, see, they I see so a bunch of folks um, at, on the campus now. You've got a couple of novices and... Yes. Yeah. yeah, the posture and then some of the Okay, so it's the postulates that I'm saying. I'll turn this off. <laughs> 